We can go ahead and be seated. I want to invite you to find a copy of God's Word and begin making your way to John chapter 14 this morning. John chapter 14, we've been making our way through the book of John, and uh, we're going to finish up John chapter 14 this morning um, as we study our text. One of the things that Jesus says in this passage is, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. In that moment, those were probably the exact words that Jesus' disciples needed to hear. We all know what that's like, to, to get just the right word at the right moment when we need it. And so imagine me for a second, you're with Jesus. You're in the upper room, the 11 remaining disciples. And here Jesus has stooped down and washed your feet. You've had the last supper with him. Judas has left the house and he's gone to betray Jesus and to set into motion the events that would lead to his crucifixion. And Jesus is preparing you. He's preparing you for his departure. Spend three years following him. Left your family, have left your career, have left everything to follow a carpenter who said that he's going to build a kingdom because in a few hours he will be crucified. He's, he's leaving you. And so these are part of Jesus' last words. And, and last words are important. We know Jesus is not wasting his breath here. He's telling his disciples, he's telling us what we need to know, what we need to hear. Now just imagine the cloud of confusion, the cloud of anxiety that's there as, as the disciples again have stepped foot for foot with Jesus for the last three years and given their lives to him. And now everything's going to change. Their relationship with him, they sense, is going to change. But, but what Jesus is telling them in this passage is that the relationship is not over. Sure, Jesus is going to leave this earth. He's going to be crucified. He'll rise again and then he'll go ascend to the Father. And Jesus physically will be absent, but his relationship with them will not end. Perhaps why this, this is why this passage is so important. Here Jesus is saying to all who are his disciples, I'm not really going to leave you. You're not going to be alone. In fact, in the Christian life, you don't have to struggle alone by yourself. And I think it's in this portion of John 14 that we begin to understand why later on Jesus would say to his disciples, it is better for you that I depart. So look with me at John chapter 14, beginning in verse 15 and reading to the end. Jesus said this to his disciples, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I'll come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, 
Because I live, you also will live. And that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you. For the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise. Let us go from here. I want you to see two truths this morning, two ideas that help us to understand this passage, and not only help us to understand the passage, but two truths that help us to understand what it's like for us to live in Jesus' physical absence. In this period of time where Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, we're waiting for him to return, how you and I are to struggle and live in this world, we need to know two things. And the first one is this. Loving God results in keeping his commandments. Loving God results in keeping His commandments. The, the disciples, they, they indeed love Jesus. I mean, after all the time they've spent with Him, they, they love Him. That's why when they hear the fact that He's going to depart and leave them, and it hits them so hard. It, it, it's a struggle to them because they love Him. And they're not just concerned about the future. I mean, after three years of walking with Him and talking with Him and seeing all that He did, they've come to love Him. But Jesus tells them that they can continue to love him and show him love even after, they're, after he's gone. He tells them that they can do it by keeping the commandments through obedience. You see, true disciples reveal their love through obedience. In verse 15, Jesus describes the proof of their love. Let's read it again. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So think about that for a moment. If you say that you love Jesus, a a natural result of that is obedience. A a natural outworking of that is is keeping the commandments of God. And, And he's not singling out a particular commandment or a particular act of obedience. He's not singling out a select saying. He's describing a life that's committed to Jesus no matter what it costs. An obedience that says, no matter what it costs me, I will follow him. That even when it's difficult, I will be obedient. Because it's easy for us to say, 
that we're obedient to some commands. Probably everybody here would say, I've never murdered. I'm obedient to that one. You could say, I've, I've, I've never stolen anything. I'm obedient. But, but what about the smaller things? I mean, what about with your thought life? Are you obedient to him there? What, what, how, how well do you love your enemies? Or, or how truthful are you when it comes to the convenient lies? Ones that are easy and you don't think anybody will, will know. You see, the, the world knew that Jesus loved the Father. But how did the world know that Jesus loved the Father? The world knew that because if you skip down to verse 31 all the way at the end, he says, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. But we know that Jesus loved the Father because he carried out everything the Father ever gave him to do, even to the point of dying a death he didn't deserve on the cross to demonstrate the fact that he loved the Father. And so the world can, can clearly see the love that Jesus has for the Father, but, but the world can and should see the love that we have for Jesus by the way that we obey Him. Being obedient in the big things, but being obedient in the small things. And now Jesus states this basic idea a number of times throughout our passage. Not only does he state it here in verse 15, but if you go to verse 21, again, he says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now, when you read that second sentence, you might be tempted to think that there's a way in which you can earn God's love. You might be tempted to think that there's a way in which you can earn God's favor, but, but Jesus isn't suggesting that obedience is the way to get God to love us. He doesn't say that at all. In fact, we, we know that isn't the case because this John also wrote the letter of 1 John, and in there he says, we love because he first loved us. God is the one who has initiated love. It's not something that we've done that's caused God to love us, but, but God himself initiated that. So then we have to ask the question, what is he saying here? I think the best way to understand it is in terms of intimacy. Intimacy with the Son and intimacy with the Father. Jesus says loving obedience is the key to progressive intimacy with, with Him. So if, you, if, if you've been born again, if you've come to know the Lord, if you've trusted Jesus Christ, there should be one thing that particularly weighs upon you, something of great importance, and that is you would continue to know the Father. That you'd continue to know Jesus, that you'd get to know him better. And, and that's exactly what he's promised to us. That they love and obey Jesus, and then he, he loves them in exactly the same way that he loves and obeys his Father, and the Father loves him. And, and so what you see, there's this oneness between Jesus and his disciples because of their love. And, and that love mirrors the love between the Father and, and the Son. And so when Jesus says, He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest to myself to him, there's, there's a promise there. There's a promise that he will continue to reveal himself. 
And so in the simplest terms, think of it, the more obedient you are out of the love that you have for, for the Son, and, and the more obedient you are, the, the more you are filled with love for Him. It, it begins this cycle, the more you understand Him, the more you get to know Him, the more He reveals Himself to you. This should be the longing of every Christian's heart, to know and love the Father, to go deeper and deeper into the love of Jesus, which surpasses all knowledge. If we love Him, we'll obey Him. And the more we love and obey Him, the more we come to know Him. I mean, it's a great promise, it's a great truth that, that you can progressively know Him more and more and more. But it's all a response to His love. It's all a response to the great love that he's shown us. There's a story about a woman who had a husband who kept a list. He kept a list of everything that he wanted her to do every single day in order for her to be a good wife. And so every day he would take out this list. It was a, it was a checklist. There was 25 things on it, and, and, uh, and, and every day he would go down the list, and he would check things off. Okay, she did the cooking, she did the cleaning, she took care of the kids, and so on and so forth. And, and I mean, he kept a pretty strict record of it, and you know, would say, okay, you kept 23 out of the 25 today, you kept 21 out of the, the 25 today. And, and as you can kind of imagine, this woman was miserable. I mean, to have a husband who would keep a list of everything he wanted her to do. And it's not that she didn't think those things were important. She saw them as important, and they are important, but, but she had maybe higher expectations for her marriage than a man who kept a list. Now, after a number of years, he died. He died, and to be quite honest, she felt a sense of relief. A burden had been lifted from her shoulders because for years she had just been performing doing things out of duty, out of obligation, and hating every minute of it, even though those weren't bad things to do. Two years later, she fell in love with a new guy. And let's just say he was a little bit different. All he ever wanted to do was express how much he loved her. He didn't keep a list. He wanted her to wake up in the morning and know how much he loved her. He wanted to be able to call her in the middle of the day and just remind her that he loved her. He wanted her to go to bed at night knowing that he loved her and that he would always love her. He wanted every waking moment of every day for her to know that she was loved. No list. Well, one day she's cleaning the house. She opens a drawer, and she finds the list from the previous husband. And as she looks at it, she begins to laugh a little bit because what she realizes is that all 25 of those duties she'd been doing in the new marriage, without even thinking about it, without any effort of it, and she didn't hate any minute of it. She loved it. It brought her joy. She was overwhelmed and overpowered by love. And it's the same way between us and the Father. 
When Jesus tells us to obey him, when he tells us to, that says, if you love me, you'll obey me, he's, he's not saying it at a sense of moral obligation or at a sense of checking off a list. He's saying it because the Father has shown love to us in sending his son, Jesus Christ, even when we were unlovable, even when we had nothing to offer him, he loved us. In our response, without even really thinking about it, should be to love him. As we've been going through the Gospel of John, this idea of love keeps coming up over and over again. And I want you to understand, if you haven't caught it already, love, according to Jesus, is not some sort of abstract thought. It's not an emotion. It's not a fluffy feeling. But, but love is something that's concrete. Love is something that's, that's tangible. Love is something that's practical. Love has never been manifested so perfectly in the single act of God giving His Son to die on the cross for sinners. Crucifixion of Jesus is proof that he loves us. And, and so here's the thing, if you're struggling to obey, I mean, you're struggling to keep the commandments, you say, hey, listen, I know intellectually speaking that I should be keeping these. I know I should be obeying. I know there's areas in my life where, where I need to work on. If you're struggling in that area, the answer isn't to just simply try harder. No, the answer is to go back to the cross. Meditate on the cross. Look at the cross. See what happened on the cross. Look at the love that was displayed on the cross and let that love be the thing that overwhelms you and moves you and does a work in your heart so that you move towards Him in obedience because of what He did in the cross. Our obedience has to flow from the heart. If obedience does not come from love, then it's just a pursuit of self-righteousness. It's just a way to check off the list. If we, if we never really obey out of love, then we're obeying out of sense of moral obligation. We're obeying to earn a right standing with Him. And, and all we're doing is trying to avoid His wrath. But that's not what we want. We want to grow in His love and His understanding. So if you're having trouble obeying, you, you need to go to the cross. And ask the Father to stir your affections for Him. Plead with God for a passion for Jesus that is so strong that obedience is natural. And Jesus says all this, and one of His disciples interrupts Him. He occasionally has that happen. The disciples interrupt Him, and they ask you a question. Some might think it's a silly question, but no question's a silly question when you're seeking an answer. So Judas asks the question. Now, not the Judas that betrayed Him, not the Judas that has already left and gone to sell him into the hands of the religious leaders, but a different Judas. And, and he says, well, Lord, in verse 22, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and the Father will love him, and we will come to him and catch us and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Love and obedience is a, it's the formula, in a sense, for intimacy with God. And, and Jesus is suggesting that if our lives aren't characterized by obedience, then we have to stop and, and, and look for a second and ask the question, do I really love Him? Have I really been changed by Him? 
Have I really experienced the grace and the mercy of God? If I, if I don't keep his commandments and, and, and I don't obey him and there isn't a heart that wants to do what he wants. I mean, even though we might come here and sing about him on Sundays, we might tell other people that we love him, that doesn't always mean that we actually love him. Real love is seen in the obedience of our lives. Loving God results in obedience. It's just a natural outworking of loving Him. Jesus' disciples needed to know that. We need to know that. As as we live in Jesus' absence, the time when physically He's not here, we await His coming, but, but to live and struggle in this world, we need to know that one of the ways we can love Jesus is by obeying Him. But here's the second thing. Because if that first truth seems difficult and hard, the second one makes it possible. Living for God requires His help. Living for God requires His help. And and this help is promised to us. It's guaranteed to us. It's given to us. It's given to everyone who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verses 16 and 17. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, You know him, for he dwells with you, and you will be, he will be in you. There's two verses out of this section that you just want to take and meditate on and and carry with you. It would be these two verses. These two verses that help us in our times of trouble. These two verses that help us in our temptation, where Jesus said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another help. Now, there are two different words in the Greek for another. And one, alos, means another of the same kind. Heteros means another of a different kind. Now, which word do you suppose is being used here? Well, he's using the first one. He's using alos. He is another of the same kind, specifically God. He's talking about the Spirit of God. It's a reference to this fact that the Spirit is God like Jesus is God. And so, of course, what he's doing here is referring to the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Now, I understand that the the Trinity is a difficult concept for us to wrap our minds around. The fact that God exists eternally as one God but three distinct persons. I mean, that just defies everything about our human minds to understand that. But, but understand this, let me be clear, we're not talking about three gods. That's, that's polytheism. Mormons believe that. That's, that's not what we believe. Biblically, we believe there is one God. And, and what we're not talking about is one God in three modes, as if, you know, the God puts on the hat of the Father and then then he quickly changes into costume and he's Jesus. And then after a little while, he, he scurries off back up to heaven. I mean, that's, that's what we call modalism. And that's, again, that's not biblical. God exists eternally at all times in three distinct persons, yet there is one God. And the Spirit is not this godlike force, like it's Star Wars or something. I mean, God the Spirit is a distinct 
person. So if we look at what is said about the Spirit in these two verses, we see some facts about the Spirit, about Him. He is the third person of the Trinity, and first we learn that He is a gift from the Father to true believers. For everyone who's a Christian, the Spirit is a gift. Again, our Lord identifies loving obedience as the mark of a true believer. A true believer is one who's been drawn to Christ by love and is ready to obey even in the most difficult of circumstances. But to those true believers, Jesus promises the Spirit is a gift. Now, my translation of the Bible, it says that the Father will give them another helper. Yours might read a little bit differently. Some have translated it as a comforter, a counselor, a helper, an advocate. Literally, some translate it as one who comes alongside. So we get this idea that, that Jesus, in his absence, he's leaving them with God the Spirit who comes alongside of them. The Holy Spirit will come and he will dwell in you. He is another, another helper. He'll come, he'll fill the role that Jesus has been fulfilling with his disciples. And so what he's going to do is he's going to comfort, he's going to strengthen, he's going to teach, just as Jesus has been doing these things. Now the Spirit of God will be doing these things in the lives of his believers, not just here during this time, but now for you and I as we are followers of Christ. But not only does the Holy Spirit come alongside But look at the last phrase in verse 17. For he dwells with you and will be in you. He abides in us. He lives in us. He takes up residence in our lives. In verse 23, Jesus expanded that concept when he answered Judas. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. So God the Father and God the Son also reside with us. Also take up residence within us. At the beginning of the chapter, Jesus encouraged us not to be troubled. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Because he was talking about you, you're going to have this person, you're going to have this place that awaits you. And now he's saying, let not your hearts be troubled because I'm making a place with you. I'm making a home with you. In fact, the word translated place in verse 2 and the word for home in verse 23 is the same. Jesus is preparing a dwelling place and that dwelling place is within us. Well, I mean, can anything be more encouraging? I mean, as you struggle to, to live the Christian life, as you struggle to obey, and there's times when you feel like you're alone and you feel like you've been abandoned to know that God has taken up residence in you. He's, he's in you. He, he not only comes alongside, but he comes in us. So, so think of the opposite. Think of the worst thing that could happen, something so many of us fear, is to be alone. And I doubt there's any of us here who want to spend our lives Alone, in the midst of our troubles, in the midst of struggles, nothing could be worse. Nothing adds to our pain and our discomfort and our trials than when we do them alone. And even though that's a common feeling, 
You realize for the believer, that's completely unnecessary. That's completely unnecessary because even when we don't feel Christ's presence, He is within us. Jesus also says He will be with you forever. And you know what the word forever means? It means forever. It means there will be no end to it. That means that the Spirit not only comes once into our lives, He does not come again and again. He comes to abide, to dwell with us forever. It reminds me a lot of what the writer of Hebrews said. In Hebrews 13, he he says, Be content with what you have, for He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, in the the original language in the the Greek, there's, there's this interesting construction where where literally it uses a number of negatives. So if we were to translate it literally in its its full length, it would read something like this, I will never, ever, under any circumstance, ever leave you nor forsake you. Never, ever, ever will I leave you. It can't be any more emphatic than that, that the promise is He will never leave us, even in the times when we feel like He has. Now, another fact about the Spirit, He's the revealer of truth. Now, think about that for a second. He is the Spirit of truth. And so, if He is the Spirit of truth, that means that He can be relied upon 100%. It means that He can be trusted. There's no confusion, no deceit, no delusionment. I mean, I don't know any aspect of the Spirit's work that's more important than this, that He is the Spirit of truth. Spirit gives us the Word, and that Word understood and interpreted by the Spirit is absolutely dependable. Now, probably one of the best things you can do to just live this, to practice this, to cherish this truth, is when you come to the Bible, to take a moment and ask that the Spirit, who is the Spirit of truth, would guide you as you read the Scripture. When the Bible says He will guide you into all truth, that's his way of saying that the Holy Spirit will be the steering wheel of your life. I mean, there's a sense in which you can get to a destination by one of two ways. Uh, one way is to look at the map and figure it out yourself as you drive. But another way is to have someone drive you who always knows where they're going. Now, let me just give you two practical ways that the Spirit helps us. Think about the times when you're when your conscience convicts you, your heart condemns yourself. You're struggling in this life to obey and glorify the Father, and you're not doing so well, and you don't think you're doing so well, and you're focusing so much on your performance, and your heart condemns you, and then you remember the words that we read in Romans 8.1, therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God reminds you that you're no longer condemned. Or think about it this way. There are times when we don't know what to pray. I mean, that happens to all of us. We get to periods in our lives, we, we, we kneel down and we're going to pray and we just don't know what to say. Or, or we're struggling with something so, so horrific that, that we can't find the words. Well, if you go to Romans 8.26, there's this promise where it says that the Spirit helps us in our weakness and gives us the words when we don't know how to pray. How, how, how great is that? To know 
and to trust and proclaim the fact that the Spirit will help us pray even when we don't have the words. He, he guides us into all truth. He leads us. Now look at verse 18 and following. This is, again, an important truth. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. I mean, the good news for Jesus' disciples is that, that they wouldn't lose Jesus when the Spirit came. He would be back by means of the Spirit. He would stay with them. When it reads, I will not leave you as orphans, he's saying, listen, I'm not going to abandon you as, as my children. I mean, that's how he felt about them. They are his children. They're, they're not orphans. And, and the one whom they had learned to love and trust was leaving them. But Jesus promises, hey, when the Spirit comes, when the, when the other helper comes, you're not going to be abandoned. I'm not actually leaving you. And here he puts his finger on what is probably the most wonderful truth about the coming of the Spirit. His primary work is to make Jesus real to his disciples. I mean, the mark of the Spirit-filled life is not signs, it's not wonders, it's not tongues, it's an ever-deepening conscious reality that Jesus is present. That's what the Spirit does for us. And so Jesus continues, yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. He's referring to his appearance following the resurrection. That Jesus is going to go be crucified and resurrect three days later and they would see him and, and they would look at his body, be assured of the fact that, that he has conquered the grave. They would see him over the course of 40 days. But more than that, he says, you will continue to see me by means of the Spirit. He says, you're going to know me more deeply, more richly, more truly after the day of Pentecost than ever before. And that's why Matthew could write, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations and, 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 and baptizing them in the name of the Father. And he says, remember what he says at the end of that? He says, and I will be with you to the end of the age. The Spirit of God makes Jesus even more real to us. Now, more than that, Jesus continues, because I live, you will also live. And so there's this, there's this new vitality that comes when we receive the Spirit. Uh, there's this, this, this new uh, Christian life, and, 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 and people whose lives were dull and meaningless and, and without purpose have suddenly become full of joy and full of life because the Spirit has taken residence in them. This is the promise of the Spirit. Jesus says, I'm going to live and, and you're going to live. You won't be dead, but you will be alive. And again, that's, that's not all. This new life, Jesus says, is expressed in two remarkable ways. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. Here, Jesus is expressing in the simplest of words the profound truth that you're in me, that, that you're a part of me. There's this union with Christ. This is our first experience when we come to Christ. We, we, we now know that we belong to a different family. 
We realize that now we're children of God. We're no longer children of the devil. We're no longer following after false philosophies and and ideas, but we've been taken from the kingdom of darkness and we've been moved into the kingdom of life and it's in that kingdom of light that we will remain forever. But there's more. Verse 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, there's really two different promises going on here. There's, there's one to the apostles, and there's one to us. To the apostles, he promises inspiration. I mean, he's, what he's going to do is he's going to bring back to mind the things that he has said in a very flawless way, everything that he taught, everything in clear terms, so that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they could record the Bible. One of the questions that people have about the Bible is how can we trust what men wrote? Well, it's got two authors. Ultimately, God is the author. And you might think, well, well, how do we know that men didn't corrupt it or they just didn't understand things, right? Well, the promise here shows that, that supernaturally speaking, that their minds and their hands would be guided as they wrote down the words and the teachings of Jesus Christ. And so the Bible is, in one sense, the work of man, but it's ultimately the work of God. And so that means each book, it still reflects the, the identity of the people who wrote it. I mean, Paul sounds like Paul. Peter sounds like Peter. Matthew sounds like Matthew. But, but ultimately, God has authored every single word. Now, for us, there's a promise. And it's not inspiration. The Holy Spirit is not revealing new things to us. So don't come to me and say, hey, the Holy Spirit has told me something this morning that nobody's ever heard of. It's never been written down in the last 2,000 plus years. And so that's, that's not the way the Holy Spirit works within us. He gives us illumination. He's helping us to understand what's already there. What already has been written, he's helping us to understand what it, what it means and, and, and the Word of God, how it applies to us. And so every Sunday when we come to the Word, that's why we ask for his help. That's why we ask for the Spirit to teach us and to illuminate the Word for us. Not that we want to find something or hear something that's never been spoken, but we want to understand what's already been written down. Think of it this way. Here's an analogy, and I understand all analogies break down at some point, but you know how a dimmer switch works, right? You probably have a dimmer switch at least somewhere in your house. If you don't, you should get one. They're great. I love them. But, but if you have a dimmer switch, you know that if you move the dimmer switch, things get progressively brighter. The, the darkness in the room progressively lifts. And things that you couldn't see, things that you couldn't see clearly, all of a sudden become illumined. You can see what was once hidden. Nothing new, just what was already in the room. You can now see it more clearly. So as we study the Word, as we meditate on the Word, as we pray for the Spirit's illumination, it's not that we see anything new or novel, but we begin to see things more clearly. We begin to see, oh, this is what God intended. This is what God meant when he wrote this. We begin to see ways in which the word of God is knitted to our lives. The ways in which the word of God applies to us. And and again, part of how the Spirit does this work is by applying 
by bringing to remembrance the words of Jesus. So you're, you're in temptation, maybe you're in darkness, you're in the midst of a struggle, and the Spirit has a way of bringing to our minds just the right verse. If you've ever experienced that, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. It's a powerful thing. But let me throw out a disclaimer. If you don't know the Word, if you don't read the Word, if you don't hide the Word in your heart, that's probably not going to happen. Which is why you should be involved with Awana. Because there's a lot of Scripture memorization. And when you memorize Scripture, when you put it into you, it, it begins to overflow out of your lives. And just when you need it the most, just when you need that Word, when you're feeling convicted or you're tempted or you're struggling, what the Spirit of God does is take the Word that you've put in your mind and brings it to the forefront and says, this is what you need. But there's more. Time only permits one more. Look at verse 27. We'll end after this. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Now it's interesting. These words are, are almost identical in a way to how Jesus first began this chapter. I mean, he first began by saying, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. He talked about giving us his person and, and we're going to, to be with him. And, and he talked about the future and he talked about preparing a place for us. And, but at the same time, you and I now, not just the future, we now receive the benefits that gives us the power to deal with the problems of life. He gives us everything now that we need to struggle. We have the same power that Jesus exercised in a sense and really even in a greater way through the Holy Spirit. And, and so what could bring more security in this world than a deeper realization of this fact that the Holy Spirit is indwelling in us, not just working alongside of us, and he puts the potential in our lives to have victory and comfort and peace and understanding when we need it the most. He says, peace I give to you. Now, what's the opposite of peace? Well, it's conflict, isn't it? War, even. You see, the peace that Jesus gives us comes through his defeat of our greatest enemies. It comes through the defeat of, of death and Satan and hell. Jesus, as he's talking with his disciples in this other upper room. He's, he's getting ready for a war, a cosmic battle, so to speak. And the outcome, though, has been decided a long time ago. I mean, there's no question who wins the battle. There's no question who wins the war. Jesus is the decisive victor. It's, Satan has nothing to bring against him. It's already finished in his mind. And so the peace that you and I can have was given to us when Jesus offered up his life to be slaughtered on the cross. That peace is made available now. That's the beauty of the gospel. We have peace because Jesus fought a war. He fought our fight so we could have peace. He took our place and our guilt and our shame so that you and I could have peace. He, he fought our greatest battle so that we could have peace forever. So loving God results in obedience, but living for God requires help. 
But that help is promised to you. It's given to you. The Word of God invites you into, into the life of God, the life where, where, where God dwells in you and you in, in Him. And, and if all we see is what Jesus demands of us and, and not what He promises us and not the Holy Spirit that He's given to us, then we'll be paralyzed. But if we love Him, if we want to be closer to Him, if we, if we resolve to express our love by obeying Him, then there's, there's another helper, the one who dwells in you. He'll comfort you, He'll empower you, He'll teach you, He'll give you everything you need. And if you allow the Spirit to work in your life, you'll, you'll finally understand what it means when He says, I haven't left you as orphans. You're not alone. Let's pray together. Father, we Oh what a what a rich and powerful truth that that no matter where we are, in this life as we we live with your absence, your physical absence, as we, we await for you to, to to return, we it's not that we just have someone who comes alongside us, but we have someone who's in us, somebody who's helping us, somebody who's giving us everything we need to live for you, to live for your glory, to have victory in this life. And so our prayer this morning is that if we haven't come to the place where, where we trust in the sufficiency of your son, Jesus Christ, that we would do that today. But for those of us who believe, for those of us who know you, for those of us who have been redeemed, let us not live our lives Apart from the Spirit, ignoring the Spirit, but instead walking daily in the Spirit, who gives us everything that we need. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.